Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Alaska Cast. Today, we're talking to Dolores Van Burgundine. She's a registered nurse, an addiction and mental health specialist, a blogger, an author, mother, podcaster, and a health and fitness enthusiast. She does it all. Dolores, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> glad to be here. Fantastic. We're very glad to have you. Um, just to start things off, could you tell us a little bit about your sort of journey, your experience going through healthcare as a profession and how you got started and why and how you came to Alaska and, and what you're doing now. Okay, so um, just a little clarification there. I'm, I'm actually a nurse practitioner, which is kind of, um, it's an advanced practice degree just above uh, registered nurse, but I'll tell you how I ended up getting there. Um, I had worked in a completely different field for 20 years, always wanted to do nursing and uh, went back to do nursing in Florida. Um, the ripe old age of 35, and progressed as a, uh, uh, did my RN, then went and did my um, nurse practitioner uh, degree online, and uh, I was a nurse practitioner in uh, Broward County, Florida, um, in the ER and trauma, and um, one of the things I hear about people coming up to Alaska is people say, oh, I came up for the summer and never left, and that was 20, 30 years ago. But um, my husband and I were sitting in Florida watching too many episodes of Ice Road Truckers and Life Below Zero, and uh, we said, oh, I'd love to do that. And my husband said, I'll do it if you do it. And um, I applied for a license, a nurse practitioner license, in the state of Alaska, and my husband and I moved up here. We um, moved to Juneau in uh, July of 2019. Uh, drove cross country to get to Alaska. So um, my passion uh, was really, I did an awful lot of addiction medicine as a nurse practitioner in Florida, uh, working through the um, the whole kind of flocka uh, crisis in Florida, which was 2014, the closing down of the pill mills, the um, uh, opiate um, epidemic in Florida, which uh, once they closed the pill mills in Florida, um, it left our uh, patients um, overnight and, and individuals overnight with no opiates and those individuals then went directly to using heroin so we had a huge heroin epidemic which of course had an associated hepatitis C epidemic as well in Florida because um, many people were using injectables and I wanted to get more into um, a very very proactive um, uh, uh, field in terms of the opiate epidemic and um, I hired um, on with a company called Ideal Option which is um, was started by two ER physicians in Washington. And they started off with one or two clinics in Washington and um, uh, have actually now opened, um, I think we're at 65 clinics in eight states in, um, in the U.S. And we're opening up um, clinics now uh, this year in New Mexico, um, adding on states every year. And unfortunately, it's, um, it's a sign of the times when you open those clinics um, because that is the need and that is the size of the epidemic. Um, and uh, so I'm based in Alaska. We have six clinics in Alaska, Juneau, Ketchikan, um, Wasilla, uh, Kenai, uh, Anchorage, and Fairbanks. And we have uh, providers at those clinics and we see patients um, every day. Um, we have a huge, I know you did want to mention it, but we have a huge telemedicine component um, which is amazing and one of the great benefits as well um, coming to Alaska because um, with such a huge rural population in Alaska, telemedicine is really the way of the future. So to be able to see these patients as well via telemedicine um, will hopefully make a huge difference in this opiate uh, epidemic. So I hope it wasn't too long. 
<laughs> no, that was that was fantastic. And I, I appreciate your clarification with a nurse practitioner. For us might not have firsthand sort of knowledge of the opioid epidemic here in Alaska. What what does that look like? Um, what are the what are the numbers? How how has that affected Alaskans? Alaska is not uh, immune to the opioid epidemic. Um, same as the rest of the lower 48. I think part of the biggest problem up in Alaska is just a barrier to care, uh, the availability to get into, uh, um, you know, medication-assisted treatment to get um, with with um, the opiate epidemic. There's a huge component of um, psych and therapy. Um, so the drugs that we use, the medications that we use for this epidemic, um, suboxone, buprenorphine, etc. According to SAMHSA which is um, uh, the uh, Mental Health um, Association, um, these medications work much, much better in conjunction with therapy. And unfortunately, you know, there are certain barriers in, in uh, Alaska to that. I mean, in the United States alone, the prevalence of, uh, um, you know, individuals using some type of an illicit drug in the past 30 days is approximately 24.6 million Um and most of the people that are getting these drugs, and it's no different for Alaska, they're getting them from uh, friends, family, or relatives, getting them out of, you know, their parents' medicine cabinet, for example. Um, about 19% of them are procured or prescribed to them initially by a doctor. Um, um, you know, very few of them are bought online, but it's like a it's like a hometown problem where, you know, with 55 over 50% of the drugs being given to them by a friend or a relative. Um, and unfortunately, between 1999 and 2017, over 700 Americans died from a drug overdose. You know, so the, and nearly three out of every four of those deaths of those of those drug overdoses were directly attributable to uh, an opiate such as either heroin or oxycodone. So um, the numbers are, are I mean, I, I, the numbers are no different here in Alaska to the rest of the lower 48. In actual fact, I, I, I actually, um, the numbers are slightly worse uh, in Alaska wow. um, uh, per percentage. I'm trying to find a document here that I had done um, a few weeks ago um, regarding, uh, uh, it was a presentation for, uh, for our company, but the barriers really are just an access to care in Alaska, which is why telemedicine um, is so important, you know? Yeah, definitely. And we were talking a little bit before the show, and it, it seems like with the influx of COVID-19 cases, there's been um, e- either a temporary or permanent pause on regulation that has mandated that um, providers meet the first uh, the first time that the providers meet a patient, they meet face-to-face, which has kind of opened the door for telemedicine. Um, but we're not quite there yet in Alaska, is that right? That's right. So what happened is with the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, um, there was a federal, um, uh, a change to the federal law regarding this face-to-face requirement. So um, because um, the medications that we prescribe are a controlled substance, um, we are um, uh, kind of mandated to see any new patient face-to-face uh, for their very, very first visit. So they do have to meet a provider face-to-face. Um, and, you know, this is a good thing and, and, and a bad thing. You know, the good thing is, is that you get to see your patient, you get to talk to them, um, you get to, you know, do a, a physical assessment of that patient. Um, uh, you get to see their readiness, their motivation to affecting change, um, especially with wanting to give up um, uh, opiates or heroin. 
Um, but the problem that we have right now at the moment with COVID-19 is um, with these face-to-face -face interactions and encounters, um, the patients are uh, coming into the clinic um, and they're um, having to see our um, uh our uh, medical assistants in the office, putting them at risk, putting other patients in the waiting room in the office at risk, uh, putting the providers who are on the front line also at risk, okay? So um, the federal government actually waived that requirement, but what happens federally um, also has to happen at a state level, and I do know that as of a couple of days ago, Washington, Montana, and a couple of other states in the lower 48 have changed that requirement at the state level, which allows for us as providers, we do still have to be licensed um, and trained in medication-assisted treatment, and we do also have to have an XDEA waiver to prescribe to those patients. But what it means is that we can actually see patients um, via telemedicine, um, in, uh, start them on these life-saving medications uh, for these patients, and um, it um, removes that kind of barrier to entry. And unfortunately, with people who suffer from substance use disorder or alcohol use disorder, um, kind of time is of the essence. You know, when somebody makes a decision, that's it, I'm not going to stop, or sorry, that's it, I am going to stop, but I need help doing that, okay? That decision doesn't necessarily happen nine to five, Monday through Friday, you know? Right. That decision can happen on a Saturday afternoon or, you know, first thing on a Sunday morning and having been added on a Saturday night. Um, and, you know, that patient has to pick up the phone, make an appointment, um, try and get in and see a provider. We're very, very, very lucky and ideal option. We have no wait times at all. Okay. So you will get in to see a provider immediately. But that requirement was to see the provider face to face. Now, hopefully, we will be able to provide that service via telemedicine. And we have a very, very robust telemedicine service um, uh, throughout Ideal Option, throughout the company. Um, so all of our providers are very in tune. Um, uh, I would say that for me, based in Alaska, I probably do, I would say, maybe 50-50 face-to-face versus telemedicine. So we're very, you know, very adept at being able to provide telemedicine services to our patients. Yeah, looking at it from an outside view, uh, from an outside perspective, telemedicine seems like a, a fairly efficient way, um, especially with the distances that we deal with here in Alaska. Uh, it, that, that federal law that sort of uh, prohibited the having the first meeting that a patient has with you over, um, you know, mandating that it's face-to-face, -face, is that sort of an outdated law? Or have you noticed any difference in effectiveness if, if that's in place or not? No, I mean, the thing is, the law was a great law. It was, uh, it's actually called the Ryan Haight Law, H-A-I-G-H-T. It was put into effect because a young man um, was prescribed opiates uh, on the internet via, uh, I'm not sure whether it was via telemedicine, but he was prescribed uh, without the physician seeing him face to face, and this young man actually died of an overdose. So that law has been in effect um, for a long time, and for good reason, okay? Mm. Um, but you know, things have changed. Medicine has changed. Now we're in the face of a pandemic. One of my um, one of my big um, uh, things here in Alaska is that I get requested on a daily basis to go to communities such as Prince of Wales, Metlakatla, um, Sitka, Wrangell, um, you know, Bethel, Nome, all of these smaller outreach communities. And I have absolutely no way to provide any service to these people. Mm. So being able, because because you of the requirement of seeing the patient face to face, so um, 
I mean, if this law changes, um, we could actually bring these medications, and they are life-saving medications. We can bring these medications to these communities, and we can interact with these uh, uh, individuals who are suffering from substance use disorder and provide them not only with the medications, but an ideal option. We actually do a great job as well of trying to provide other services because so many things make up opiate use disorder, um, substance abuse. So many things make make up this problem. I mean, sometimes the use of the drug is just to numb the other things going on in a patient's life. Um, you know, individuals have had adverse childhood events happen to them. There's a lot of PTSD, um, uh, a lot of uh, poverty, um, a lot of challenges in, in, in Alaska, especially. Um, and we are able to provide um, uh, outreach services to these individuals to link them up to um, uh, people in the community that can help them with these other issues. Um, housing, for example, you know, would be another uh, another big issue. We see an awful lot of homeless patients. Um, so that, that's one of the great things about us as providers and and, and our, our medical assistants and community outreach people um, in Ideal Option. We are able to kind of do like a spoken hub where we would be, um, you know, the hub trying to help these patients out. We will get them onto medication-assisted treatment, but in addition to that, we will also uh, link them to therapists, psychiatrists in the community, link them to peer support groups. Peer support groups are invaluable um, with helping these individuals on their journey, and then also linking them to some other mental health, housing, um, food, and food stamps. Um, I, I don't even want to tell you the number of people I see who, who have not eaten. It, it shouldn't happen, you know? Yeah, people have difficulties in their lives, and that seems to be one of the things that they uh, use as an outlet there. Um, absolutely, absolutely. And the, th- and the thing about it is is that um, I think um, uh, you have to have a holistic approach. I mean, the literature bears it out that um, unless you address the other issues, um, uh, some patients will do very, very well just on medicated assisted treatment, um, but um, your um, uh, rate of success with these individuals is much, much higher and the outcome is much better if you do provide a holistic approach. And that, I mean, that's another thing going on right now um, as well with this you know, pandemic is that um, we are um, trying to, and, and I keep getting people to go to the Ideal Option website because we're also trying to collate um, services for our patients in the midst of a pandemic. So, for example, one of the tenets of AA and NA is that these meetings are anonymous. So, and 12 step programs have been shown to be invaluable in, in, in patient success. But right now, at the moment, all meetings and gatherings are canceled. So, mm-hmm. where does an individual go who's kind of isolating and staying in place at home because of the pandemic? Okay. Now, isolation in and of itself as well is very, very difficult for these individuals, you know? So where does the person go that is a safe space that is, you know, somewhat anonymous, okay? some A, a lot of people want it to be anonymous. Some people, you know, say they don't mind whether it is or not. Um, we always maintain anonymity. But where can these individuals go to find um, meetings that are safe and anonymous and chaired by people who, who really know what they're doing. So we've collated over at um, Ideal Option on our website and also on our Instagram page links to these online meetings. Um, and I actually did a FaceTime on my own um, uh, Facebook page 
um, a Facebook Live the other day showing pe- people and directing people to an app called Zoom. And, you know, straight off the bat, I said it as well. I have no um, affiliation with Zoom or anything uh, other than I do use their product. Um, and their product is is really easy and user-friendly. And we're using it right now for, for this call. But um, um, I directed people to the Zoom app. So as individuals who are at home, who are suffering from substance abuse, who can't get to meetings, have a way to actually go and talk to um, to other members of their community in NA and AA. Um, and we've actually, I found some great links as well. I just posted some additional resources today from the Mental Health Association, um, and that's linked to um, emotional support lines, mental health lines, um, you know, um, and how to um, deal with um, with all of those things in the face of a pandemic. So that's, I, I mean, it's very, very difficult for individuals who are suffering from substance abuse um, at the moment because they are on top of everything else now. They're also isolating, and, and unfortunately, sometimes that's, that's not a good thing when you're isolating and you get time to think, and um, uh, it's uh, probably increases cravings as well, you know, for a for a drug that they're trying to get off. Definitely, and I, I listened recently to a, you released an episode of a podcast where you talked about seasonal uh, affective disorder and how that um, can affect people here in Alaska. Can you give us a kind of a, a summary of what that episode is about? <laughs> yeah. So um, when I moved up here in July, I moved from Florida. Okay, so I moved, I moved from 90 degree weather, sunny days every single day, and I moved up to Alaska. And um, in October, I said to my husband, I'm not going to make it. I'm not <laughs> going to be able to survive up here. Okay, so um, the podcast was actually, uh, the podcast on seasonal affective disorder was actually uh, born out of my own uh, uh, probably seasonal affective disorder. So, um, yeah, I researched it. I had I had actually done some components of that of that podcast many about four or five years ago. So in Alaska, of course, there's a decrease in sunlight, uh, change in daylight saving time, and from October to March, uh, we don't get an awful lot of sunlight up here. Um, and I went out and I bought my Verilux lamp, and which gives me ten thousand units of lux. You're meant to get ten thousand units consecutively for thirty minutes in Alaska. I will tell you that I have a lux meter on my phone and I did go out in Juneau at like noon. Um, and you get enough lux. If you can go out and take a walk at lunchtime, I mean, first of all, it's great throughout nature. And even with watery light, you are getting the required amount of, of lux, which activates the rods and cones in the eyes. And, uh, um, uh, you know, it, it helps with all of your um, circadian rhythms and uh, production of melatonin and various other things and dopamine and serotonin. So, um, but on the seasonal acquired depression, the, um, uh, there's a bunch of um, uh, supplements that you can actually use, um, uh, and they are over the counter, and people can actually go to my podcast. I mean, we, we use omega-3, uh, vitamin D, of course, um, and uh, uh, 5-HTP, and another supplement called SAM-E, and absolutely get outside, get your 30 minutes of light, walk, get out in nature. And um, uh, I actually ski in Juneau in Eagle Crest. I learned to ski this year. Um, it was a very long and arduous process for my lovely ski instructor, Scott. Um, after nine weeks, I was finally able to get out of the chair, the chairlift at Eagle Crest. But 
the thing about that was I was out every single Saturday and Sunday. And I'm just telling you, I, I didn't have any depression at all. I have a couple of patients that I gave the information to um, as well. And they said that, you know, for them, it really improved uh, their mood, uh, didn't have any depression. They were getting their exercise in. So um, all of these things uh, uh, helped them uh, get through the, uh, the winter months. And now, of course, we're seeing an addition of six or seven minutes of daylight every single day. I was here in Kenai last night, and it was still bright at 8, 8.30, I think, last night. Yeah, we're finally finally getting back to, um, if, if you got here in July, it sounds like you saw our beautiful summers, and I'm very excited, and I know a lot of Alaskans are, for those summers to come back again. We're almost there. Um, but that podcast, that uh, episode came out under um, the name Synergy Health and Wellness, um, and that sounds like another project that you do along with your work uh, with Ideal Options. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I I had Synergy Health and Wellness in when I was in Florida, and I just tried to put out. Um, I think most of us as nurses and um, nurse practitioners, and and nurse practitioners, we're at the core of us. We are nurses, okay. Um, and I think that's one of the amazing things about nurses and nurse practitioners. We are on the front lines um, of education, and I think most of us want to educate our patients. Um, we would like nothing more than to not see people in the emergency rooms or doctor's offices, uh, prevention rather than cure. Um, and so my Synergy Health and Wellness end of things was more of a um, educational, um, you know, for me to put information out for, for friends and family and whoever wanted to, you know, wanted to um, get information on subjects such as vitamin D, seasonal acquired depression. Um, I actually did a three-part series just on depression in and of itself. And I'm very, very fortunate with Ideal Option that um, we are allowed, um, I mean, we are um, encouraged um, all the time to um, get out and educate our patients. Um, we have, um, as I said, we have two, uh, three or four maybe community-based uh, outreach people. And these are fabulous young people who um, go out into the community um, and they go to all of the opiate task force. Um, we're trying to get into uh, more into schools. Um, to at the high school level to get into high schools to to start this initiative um, and um, educate young people on the perils and dangers of uh, uh, drug use and what they can do to avoid it. So our community outreach people are very very involved with uh, uh, with um, the communities um, and that's every community. I mean we have community outreach officers in uh, Montana and Washington and they go to downtown Seattle and they go to um, uh, you know, they go to, um, we actually go and um, uh, educate at the um, state level and the legislature. We have a great guy, Jeff uh, Godfrey, who does that in, um, company-wide. So I'm very fortunate that what I was doing at Synergy Health and Wellness, I've been allowed to, you know, educate my patients here in Alaska um, as well on the same thing. Um, and, and it is, it's about education. Even with the pandemic going on at the moment, we can educate people regarding telehealth. Um, and telemedicine as a means to um, gaining access to their primary care, which will help them stay stay healthier. I think, um, uh, you know, it's hard to go to the doctor's office when you have to walk in the door and sit there and, and uh, uh, wait 45 minutes to an hour for an appointment. By the way, at Ideal Option, people don't have to sit and wait that long for an appointment. We have uh, great scheduling people that, that uh, help us navigate through that. But, um, I mean, if that's a barrier to to, you know, improving or having good health that's the reason why people don't go to the doctor until they're sick mm -hmm. so if we could just do more education and more prevention on on the 
uh, front end things, I think we'd all be an awful lot better, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and kind of on the same, um, and I know this, this might not be a specialty of yours, but I, I, I did want to ask you as someone in the healthcare field, um, another reason that I hear that people don't go, they wait until they're very sick before they go to the doctor is, is the cost and kind of the confusion. Um, from a healthcare side, what do you, what do you think of our current healthcare system here in the U.S. and it, it, how much how many of your patients have health insurance? Um, how does it work with the cost of treatment? So um, I, I'm actually I was actually born and raised in Ireland, um, and I lived in England as well for a period of four years. Um, and I am not a big fan of national health, to be honest with you. I think the healthcare system in the United States is the best healthcare system in the world. I I, you know, I've lived under other systems. Um, I've had wait times to get in to see doctors and dentists in Europe. Um, uh, I know my colleagues in Ireland are, my, my nurse colleagues in, in, uh, in Ireland are stretched to the absolute limit. Um, um, it's very, very difficult. So um, I think in the United States, um, uh, there's a great can-do attitude in America. Um, there's a awesome can-do attitude in Alaska, most resilient place I've ever been. Um, and I think the healthcare system, the healthcare system is, is, I mean, it's difficult to navigate. I definitely think that the telehealth, uh, telemedicine option is a much, much cheaper option mm-hmm. and we can open it up to a wider field. And that's why I am so pro tel- telemedicine. Um, uh, most of, a lot of my patients in Alaska are actually covered with Alaska Medicaid which is amazing. Um, I did work in Florida and the um, uh, patients that I was seeing in Florida did not have um, coverage that my patients in Alaska do. Um, but an ideal option, I mean, finance or the ability to pay is never a barrier. We will work with individuals to try and get them onto um, Medicaid programs. We'll work with them with whatever insurance they have. Um, but we do not... Um, uh, um, you know, it's not a barrier to somebody coming in the door. And we've been uh, very, very successful um, in helping individuals get insurance and get Medicaid, et cetera. So um, I, think, yeah, I think just for, I think in, in the United States that, you know, um, uh, definitely the best uh, healthcare system in the world. Um, I do also love um, uh, the nurse practitioner PA model as well. Um, I think um, Alaska um, is very proactive with that. They do allow independent practice. Um, I was uh, not allowed independent practice. I had to practice with a collaborating physician in Florida. That changed as of about a week ago, and um, they will allow independent practice now starting July of 2020. Wow. So I think um, uh, nurse practitioners are, are an ama- and TAs, my TA colleagues, uh, we are a, um, um, a, a huge asset to the medical model in the United States. Um, I do rely heavily on my doctors. Um, and I love working collaboratively with them too. Um, and I'm very fortunate with the doctors that we have an ideal option as well, because we actually have, I think it's about um, it's, uh, um, greater than 10 board certified addictionologists, which is a whole other, you know, um, it's, an, it's a board certification in addiction medicine. So um, yeah, I think, I think the system, the system has, has cracks in it and flaws in it, but um um, definitely, um, is the system in the United States is a lot better than an awful lot of other areas of the world. Gotcha. 
Why, looking at kind of people across um, Alaska, in, in rural America, rural Alaska, different groups, why, why do people start doing opioids, um, and, and why do they decide to stop? Um, it's a big question. So, <laughs> There's, there might not be one no, answer to a, that. <laughs> no, and it's, and it's a great question. Um, and it, it, when I was living and working in Florida, um, I always said, if I had a dime for every child um, who had been injured playing sports and put on an opiate. Mm. So we would deal with so many kids um, that um, were kind of D1 prospects um, in, in the lower 48, and they were sort of D1 prospects, and their identity was tied to, um, you know, they were the best basketball player on the team, and they were going to go to the best D1 school, on the, on, and they were being courted by these coaches. And then all of a sudden, they, you know, tore an ACL or a broken ankle or whatever the case may be. Um, and then they were put on an opiate. Okay, the opiate made them immediately feel better at a time when their life was now crashing around them and was their whole identity was over. Um, so that was what happened in Florida. Um, I'm actually shocked, so shocked in Alaska. So many of my patients just started out recreationally due to boredom. Okay, a lot of it was boredom and peer pressure. And I'm talking maybe 13, 14 years old. So um, one of the things about getting into the schools, um, uh, one of the things about getting into the schools is to educate these young people and to actually get them very involved um, in, I, I just said, you know, the kids that got injured in sports, but having said that, you know, there were far more kids that stayed in sports and stayed out of trouble and worked hard and kept their grades up, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, that's, I mean, nobody wakes up and says, that's it. I want to use drugs. You know, that's what my you know, plan in life is going to be. And that's why we do have to look at these adverse childhood events. And we do have to make, you know, kind of childhood a little bit more positive for these kids, um, get them involved in sports, get them involved in debate, get them invo involved in, you know, science, technology, engineering, um, have a good home support system, stability in the home, um, and then just navigate them through those waters of, of you know, those teenage years. Um, and so that's, you know, it, it, there, there are multiple reasons and multiple factors as to why people, you know, pick up drugs. It's peer support or not peer support, peer pressure, um, boredom. Um, everybody else is doing it. Um, uh, no concrete goals or whatever, you know, they're, they're not working towards a debate final or, or, or a basketball, you know, uh, championship or football uh, championship or whatever. Um, and, um, then later in life, you know, um, there's, there's again, adverse events happen, happen to people. Um, uh, you know, individuals lose husbands and wives and lose their kids and everything. And you have these very kind of traumatic and PTSD events. And we need to be able to provide more services to individuals when they're going through those life events too. Um, and that's what people, people initially turn to drugs maybe to numb these things. Um, and then what we find is people, a lot of people continue to use, um, like heroin, for example, people continue to use because they don't want to get sick. And what happens is, is once patients start withdrawing, from these medication or from heroin rather uh, once they start withdrawing they feel really miserable they're they've got you know runny nose body aches and pains um they're 
sweating, they've got chills, um, horrible restless leg syndrome. Um, and they go back and they just use to not get these um, uh, symptoms. So they don't necessarily keep using drugs to get a high. I find most of my patients keep using drugs to, to manage these um, side effects. Yeah, and I I uh, I also did I, I did Division One um, sports running, different types of distance running in in college, um, and I as early as high school saw people that would race on on pain pills and different medication because it would help them with with the pain. Um, and I guess what, what what you were saying did ring true to me because I I do know people in my own life that started just doing it, um, you know, out of out of necessity, and then slowly over time they realized that. Or maybe they didn't realize, but they they started to need it to to feel okay. Correct. With with that, why why do people stop? How do, why do they come to you, and why why do they say, "I've had enough. I want I want I want to stop being addicted." Um, because they end up losing everything. Yeah. Everything they lose their families, their children. Um, OCS is taking their children away from them. Um, they can't hold down a job. They have no um. They can't uh, pay their rent. They end up homeless. Wow. They lose everything. It is the it's the one thing um, alcohol and drugs and everything. Patients lose absolutely everything. And um, I think it was um, there's a channel on TV called Bite, and they did a program about a Wall Street um, stockbroker. And he had used, I think the story was that he had used drugs way back in, uh, when, when he was 20. Um, and he had successfully stopped using drugs, got his life back, in, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then he started using again for whatever reason. And he lost everything in weeks. Wow. Not years, not months. I mean, weeks and days, you know. And right now at the moment, too, one of the reasons for coming off drugs is because of uh, the high associated risk of overdose. Because um, the people who are providing the drugs really don't, you know, they're adulterating these drugs with with, uh, very, very powerful um, painkillers such as fentanyl. So people are scared when you're every time they inject or they use drugs, um, they're scared that they might overdose. And so their families as well are asking them to stop doing it because, you know, not only are they going to lose everything and everybody around them, they might even end up losing their own life. That's so, a sober thing to realize and, and, and to, to try to, it's a big burden to carry uh, when you try to go through this process. Is, is, there, is there a timeline that people typically take when, when they come to you or does it depend on the person that kind of goes through this process of, of recovery? So individualized. Every single person is completely different. Every every human's requirements are completely different. Every person's circumstances are completely different. Um, I do see that if people have support, peer support, family support around them, they tend to fare an awful lot better. Um, if they feel that somebody's there in their corner with them, who's supporting them, no, and you know, no matter what. And actually, that's what we do as providers as well. You know, when patients, when my patients come in to see me and I know every other provider that I work with, okay, is the same. When they come in, 
we are their champions. We're champions. You know, we want them to succeed. You know, we would like nothing better than than for people to have long-term sobriety and to never see us again, you know? Um, but we are their champions. You know, they come in the door. It's a safe, non-judgmental place, you know? People, you know, everybody's human. People are going to relapse, okay? And it's our job not to look at that relapse as a really bad thing. I always tell my patients, patients who come in the door, I'm so glad you're back. That's the courage, you know? The courage is picking, uh, you know, yourself up again and walking back in the door again. That's the strength and that's the courage, you know. And um, so for those patients who do have support, who have family, friends, um, I always tell my patients, if you want to bring in your husband, wife, your child, your mother, if you want to bring them in to sit here, we'll all talk together because it's a, unfortunately, a disease that affects the entire family. So, um, so I mean, as much as I say that it's sobering, or, or like you said, that it's sobering that, you know, um, people lose everything. What I have seen and what we have all seen is with medicated assistance treatments, okay, that we have seen unbelievable success stories. You know, we have seen parents get their kids back after, you know, six months or a year working with OCS, maintaining their own sobriety, providing an awesome home environment for these kids to live in, okay? Um, they go back to work. They get their jobs back. Um, we have some great employers who stand by their patients, you know, stand by their employees. And we've seen these people get their lives and their jobs. And that's the, that's the unbelievable flip side of, of this disease, too, where, there, where you see, you know, an awful lot of sobering things. We see some unbelievable success stories you know i think and i think for providers though that's what keeps most providers doing we, we have a, a passion and a love for our patients and and uh, and for the outcome yeah that's a that's it it really sounds like it's a it, each person means something to you and that's that's great to see and um that must be a, a very emotionally taxing job for everybody involved everyone along the process yeah, it, it is. It's extremely taxing, but you know what? It's just, it's, it's unbelievably rewarding. And that's the thing too right now with everything that's going on at the moment. You know, one of the frustrations, as I said earlier on, is, you know, I have, I have people in Metlakatla, Prince of Wales, wherever, and I can't get to them. I want to get to them, you know? Um, our other providers in Alaska, uh, our rural providers in Idaho and Montana, they want to get to those people too, you know, because, you know, the success is in the numbers too. You know, we want to be able to reach more people, you know, and, and see these patients and, you know, turn their lives around. Absolutely. And, and a lot of that is right now, I mean, due to the response of, of, of COVID-19, uh, switching gears just a little bit, is that something that Alaska is, is ready for? Are we prepared? I keep I keep reading stories um, from from Italy, from Spain, uh, countries that have closed their entire borders, banned public gatherings. Um, is it Alaska in a in a place to to combat this? How serious and ha- how worried should we be? I, I mean, I think that we should follow all the uh, federal mandates, um, state mandates. Um, act, uh, we should absolutely be following all of the CDC guidelines. I think that you know it's. COVID-19 is already in Alaska, you know, um, and I think that it is going to, um, uh, you know, it's going to spread with the same spread as it is in the lower 48. 
Um, I think that definitely we're as ready, you know, federally as as rest of the country. You know, so um, you know, I mean, if you if we follow the guidelines and everything regarding social distancing, uh, et cetera, et cetera, um, um, I think that we will see. I'm not going to say that we shouldn't be worried because, of course, we we do have to be worried, you know. Um, but um, um, I think that you know, following the guidelines of of the government and the CDC, that's what we and the World Health Organization we should do, you know. I think what happened in Italy and what happened in China was um, that the rate of infection was so huge that they had that huge big spike. They talk about flattening the curve, you know. They just had that huge big spike. And from some of the other stuff that I read as well is the population that was affected in Italy was uh, quite old too. Yeah, lots of factors. That's, that's... And again, I mean, I was going to say that epidemiology, infectious disease is not my, you know, it's not my um, specialty. Um, but I think that we just need to be really, really sensible, follow the guidelines that are coming out, um, the social distancing, CDC, World Health Organization. Perfect. Perfect. And and last question, Dolores. Um, you've been in Alaska for almost a year now. You made it through the, the rough, dark, cold winters. Uh, do you see yourself staying here for, for a long time? Um, absolutely. Absolutely. And if you talk to my husband, he's never leaving. <laughs> he's never leaving. He thinks, uh, he, uh, and it is, Alaska is probably... I mean, I've lived in Africa. I traveled my whole entire life. I lived in Europe, etc. Lived on the East Coast, and there is nothing more beautiful than Alaska. Wow! It is. It, it's probably one of the most. It is. It, for me, it is the most beautiful place I've ever been. Yeah. I would agree with you. Every time I leave, I come back. Uh, I know I'm not alone. I uh, yeah. 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 Well, um, every every day, it's a it, every day. It's a different postcard you know every day you walk out i i, I live in uh, juno on douglas island i look out across where the cruise ships were on the gaston channel i go out to mendenhall i go to Ork bay i go skiing in eagle crest um and that's only in my downtown area i mean you, you're kind of you know you're kind of betwixt in between i mean i've had such a great time in the winter with the snow but now i'm like mm, you know i can't wait until i can go hiking there you go. You know, yeah, you can um, you can really discover the same landscape twice, once with snow, once without, um, and it's 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 pretty amazing. Yeah, and then Ketchikan's the same thing. And then last night there was nothing more spectacular than Mount Redoubt, Mount Redoubt, I think it is, in Kenai. There, I mean, absolutely just unbelievable scenery and everything. I think my husband and I are going to try and get to Denali during the summer. Um, but this is it is the most beautiful place in the world. Alaska is the most unbelievable place. Fantastic. Dolores, thank you so much. We've been talking with Dolores. She's a registered nurse practitioner, an addiction and mental health specialist, and so much more. Dolores, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, okay? Good luck. Bye-bye. The Alaska Cow.